0: What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is a Q&A, but I start with a little fire under my ass. I don't know what got into me, but I got into a rant on the first part of this podcast, and I really wanted to tell you guys something important to live your life by, right? And it's a quote. That I heard recently and I just wanted to go in on because it's something I share as a philosophy in my life and everything I do and I believe that it is a very big key in seeing success no matter who you are and what you do. So you're going to hear me go off on a specific topic, uh, might motivate you a little bit, might fire you up and then I get right into the questions and we cover fasting with cortisol issues. We talk about why a calorie surplus is needed in order to gain muscle, um, and what they actually did in the back in the days before MyFitnessPal and My Macros Plus, and, and different ways of tracking your macros were available, um, and then we got into a question regarding how to build muscle without being in a calorie surplus and if that's even possible. I talked about weighing your food properly. I talked about nutrition for menopause, talked about burning calories and adding them back into your daily intake and whether or not you should do that, um, how to structure your macros when you are sidelined for an injury, functional muscle and CrossFit put together, and then a bunch of random shit from my boy Marty Marr about wine and beef and favorite movie stars and shit like that, so you guys are going to get a lot out of this episode, and I answered a lot of questions, and now that I'm reviewing the questions, I realize there's a lot of info in here, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. Before we get into the show, two quick announcements, guys. First one is the same one I make every time. Do me a favor. Take a screenshot of the show. If you enjoy these Q&As, put a picture of this on your Instagram story. Tag me so I can see who is listening to this and let me know in the DM, like when I respond back to you. Tell me who you want to see on the show next. Tell me what you love learning about. Tell me why you love the show so I can do more of that for you guys. There's nothing that helps me more besides taking screenshots and tagging me on social media, whether that's Snapchat, Instagram, or Facebook, or anywhere that you tend to go. Like screenshot this podcast and let people know what you're listening to. That and leaving me a five-star rating and review truly does more than I could possibly let you know in order for me to grow this show. The next quick announcement is that we are part of Patreon, guys, so if you want to actually physically donate to this cause, to this podcast, to this movement, so we can get more shows out at a better quality with better guests and give you more free information, you can actually subscribe and donate to this podcast now at patreon.com slash boom boom. Now, before any further ado, let's get on to this awesome Q&A. I want to start this Q&A with a quote something that I'm actually stealing from Jason Phillips. I heard him say it and he stole it from somebody else. He was referring to his mentors and his coaches and things that he's gone through. And, and I mean, and realistically, that's how everything gets relayed, right? Like I'm, I didn't invent any of the shit I talk about. It gets relayed from coach to coach, to mentor, to mentor, to leader, to leader, book to book. And so everything works in life. But what he said really hit home and resonated with something that I say so frequently. I, I put into practice every single day. I preach to my clients, but I never had like a, a one-liner to display what I mean by that. And what he said was, things don't happen to you. Things happen for you. Stop and think about that for a little bit. Things don't happen to you. Things happen for you. That's a successful mindset. If you can't be willing to stop and see why this thing that is happening to you is a gift and not a curse, you'll never grow. The biggest lessons in our life come from failures, come from hiccups or speed bumps in the road, come from fuck-ups, come from negative things that we are not happy about. But the reality is, is the reason they allow us to grow is because we look at them as a gift. Everything in life is a gift because everything teaches you a lesson. That's how we grow. That's how we build. That's what positive focus is all about. What happened? Why is it positive? Or why is it a gift? And how can you apply that? And you can apply this to your body, training, nutrition. You can apply this to your mindset, your emotional well-being, your spirituality, God, whatever you believe in, you can apply this to your relationships, your spouse, your family. You can apply this to your business in every single aspect. But if you apply this in your daily life and you decide to focus and actually think about one quote unquote gift that happened to you, and and look at it as in this happened for me, not to me. If you can do that once per day, I promise you, your growth in every area of your life will be phenomenal. It'll be insane. But not enough people do that. Not enough people sit down and take the time. A lot of people think it's cheesy. Okay, there's this fucking motivational quote. Hoorah! Posted on Instagram. <laughs> but the reality is, is the people that live by those type of quote unquote motivational shit that you see on Instagram. Those are the people that are constantly seeing results. They're constantly seeing happiness. They're constantly seeing success, because they're learning. Learning is a choice. Knowledge is a choice. Education is a choice. And just like all that is a choice, results are a choice too. And I don't know why I'm on one right now and I want to just like shout this into the mic. But the truth of the matter is, is not enough people are stopping and appreciating the gifts that are being given to them. And sometimes those gifts that are being given to you look like shit. They don't look like something that's going to make you happy, make you better, make you more successful, give you better results. But the truth is, is if you can learn from those shitty situations, that's exactly what's going to give you the results. There's another quote from a coach. Fuck, I wish I would have wrote this down. I heard it on the Brute Strength Radio, and he was referring to another coach. I want to say he's a coach for the Browns or some shit like that. And he basically said, like, you're going to suffer. And he was talking to CrossFit athletes, but we were, they were talking about how it applies to life. And it, and it goes hand-in-hand hand with what I'm talking about. If you come into it knowing that you're going to suffer a little bit, you're going to come out on the other end. If you go into it expecting it to be rainbows and butterflies, I promise you you're not going to come out on the other end. Because when shit hits the fan, when things don't work out, when you hit a failure – you're going to freak out. You're not going to know how to handle it. You're not going to be able to look at it as a gift. You're not going to be able to look at it and find the course correction, the positive focus, the lesson behind whatever is going on. But if you come into it with the mindset of I will suffer at some point, at some point, shit is going to hit the fan. And I do this with every area of my life. At some point in my relationship, there's going to be a shitty time where we're not happy. We're pissed at each other. We're going to fight. It's just inevitable. It's just inevitable. So if I can already know that's going to happen and not expect it to never happen, I'm going to handle that situation better. I know for a fact getting ready for this photo shoot, there's going to be times where I fucking hate it. I don't want to diet more. I don't want to track my macros. I really just feel like having a half bottle of wine, maybe a full bottle. Let's be honest, a full bottle of wine and saying, fuck my fitness, pal. But I'm not going to do that because I knew before I went in, I spoke this to a group of people that are holding me accountable. And I told them, every single time I do a diet, I get super lean, and then I say, fuck my fitness pal, (laughs) and I get the hell out of there, and I quote-unquote intuitive eat, and guess what? I lose my results. Not this time. But I knew that going into this. So now every time I think it sucks and I don't want to train, I remember that, and I push through anyway. I just know that some days I'm going to suffer. With my business, I know there's going to be hiccups. I know there's going to be times where you lose clients. There's going to be times where you got to invest more than you want to. There's going to be times where I'm going to have to pay a pretty penny to play the game. And sometimes you don't like money leaving your pocket, but it's part of it. And I know at some point I'm going to suffer. But instead of looking at it like constantly suffering or shitty things happening to me, going back to the first quote, things don't happen to me. They happen for me. And now I can stop and think, why is this happening for me? What is this giving me? What is the lesson behind this situation? I promise you guys, the reason I am, I don't even like to say the reason I am successful because I feel like that's so, I don't know, like conceited sounding. I don't like sounding that way. But the truth of the matter is I've had great success with my business. My clients have seen phenomenal results. I've worked with Bodybuilders and bikini athletes and pro athletes and everyday men and women who have transformed their bodies, transformed their lives. I've mentored other coaches who have built their businesses, doubled their businesses because I've helped them. I've started a a mission behind my – I've done a lot of cool fucking shit and I'm happy and I've changed my body. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that is I live by that line. Things don't happen to me. They happen for me. And I can promise you every single person you look up to, every person that I look up to, lives by that as well. I don't know why I felt like I needed to just yell this into the mic and just go off on you guys. But today, I'm on one, and that's how we're going to start the Q&A. Guys. Like I just said, today is q and i am I'm gonna I'm gonna get off the serious tangent now. I hope you guys take that to heart. I hope you guys do something with it. If you have any questions, if you guys need help, sh- reach out to me. Shoot me an email, Cody at boomboomperformance.com. I answer every single email that I ever get, um, and I I love helping people seriously. So that being said, let me take a drink real quick because now I got cotton mouth from screaming at you guys, and. Uh, Let's get on to the Q&A. First question comes from Rhiannon. Rhiannon, I'm, I'm going to always do this. I believe it's Rhiannon. Rhiannon Healy. Fasting with cortisol issues. Why it just doesn't work for everybody. So the the thing with this is intermittent fasting is a stress on the body. And I think what people need to realize or what people forget is that intermittent fasting is a stress on the body. See, the thing – people – Assume, you know, intermittent fasting is good for you, so it can't be a stress. Well, you know, to an extent, dieting is good for you, but that can be a stress. Um, training is good for you, but that definitely is a stress, right? Like we we create stresses in our life, in our body, um, with nutrition, training, whatever it may be, because we want to elicit a change. When we stress the body, it adapts, right, because it has to adapt to that stress. When you give it a stress for so long, it has two choices, Break down or recover and adapt. And if you're smart about things, you recover and adapt. So with intermittent fasting, it's no different. Your body is um, trying to adapt to the stress you're giving it, which is fasting. And because of that, you have these hormonal positive hormonal changes. You have insulin sensitivity increasing, so on and so forth. Um, the, The hard part about this is that intermittent fasting is a stress that could possibly increase adrenaline and cortisol. When cortisol is raised up, We suffer a lot of other issues stress-related from nutrient partitioning issues to uh, your body not burning fat to your body overstressing, your body not recovering fully, not building muscle. Cortisol is good because it gets us amped up. It wakes up in the morning. There's a lot of benefits to cortisol, but there's also a lot of negatives to cortisol. Um, So – fasting if you have cortisol issues the reason it's not for you is basically because if you already have cortisol issues you're just making them worse by adding fasting it's a stress on the body um, and you're just going to push your body to create uh, more cortisol for a more extended period of time most likely uh, because that's part of what our body does when it relates to stress it builds cortisol that's why stress relief practices are the key to lowering cortisol so I wouldn't suggest fasting if you have any cortisol or adrenal issues. If you have uh, adrenal fatigue or HPA axis dysfunction, y- you're not going to do well with intermittent fasting, period. It's it's only going to make – it's going to exaggerate the, wor- the, the symptoms you're facing. It's going to make everything worse. You're probably going to experience less fat loss, more fat accumulation. You're probably going to experience shittier sleep. Poor nutrient absorption, Um, insulin sensitivity is probably going to get out of whack because cortisol can affect your blood glucose levels. There's a lot of negatives that could possibly happen if you keep cranking that cortisol up. Um, So for people who have cortisol issues, I typically like a more balanced approach. I'm actually going to have them eat more meals throughout the day. I'm actually going to have them eating carbohydrates more frequently and have a good carb intake per day because carbs are a natural uh, – I guess you could call it a blunter of cortisol, like it's actually going to help you blunt that cortisol response. Um, that's why I like typically post-workout, we like to have carbs in our post-workout meal because it's going to help blunt that cortisol response. That's going to help uh, mitigate recovery better, um, so on and so forth. So the reason it's not good for you to fast if you have cortisol issues at all is basically pretty simple. It's It's just... Going to create more stress, it's going to create more cortisol, and you're going to actually go down a dig a deeper hole of stress hormones in your body going out of whack. Johan Soberg, an in depth explanation on why calorie surplus is needed to gain muscle. Back in the days, I guess you could not track macros at today, but there were still some muscular people around. Um, yeah, so. Uh, I think you worded that a little bit wrong. But back in the days, you couldn't track macros on an app like you can today. Uh, But back then, there were still people. So a lot of bodybuilders back in the day were very intuitive because of this. Um, They didn't have a way to track macros. A lot of information wasn't out there on macros. But what they did know is that if they ate more food, they were probably going to build more muscle. Um, If we look at food itself, right, specifically protein and carbs, they are there to help aid recovery, um, stimulate muscle protein synthesis, and they are going to lead to better performance. Those are three things that are absolutely crucial in building muscle, period. So people back in the day basically ate food, um they, they realize intuitively, okay, when I eat more meat, when I eat more animal products that are high in protein, I actually recover better. There was probably some science on this back in like bodybuilder days, obviously, but even like the you know, the early nineteen hundreds when there was like muscular people, they probably didn't know. They just knew, you know, recovery is better when I drink plenty of water and I eat plenty of animal products. Eventually they realized too that when they eat carbohydrates, they had better workouts. Okay, what's going on? I'm getting a better pump, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Training is faster and harder when I eat these carbs. So they can probably get the picture of like this helps me get bigger. This helps me get stronger. If I get stronger, I get bigger, so on and so forth. Um, But – as time went on, they started doing, like, Excel sheets and stuff. So even, like, in Arnold's day, a lot of those guys journaled. There was, like, uh, macro-tracking journal books that you could buy from Barnes and & Nobles and shit, and you can actually write out your macros for the day and stuff. Um, but it's intuitive, man. Those people just understood that, like, the more you eat, the more you grow. Um, from As far as, like, a, a scientific explanation of why, it's just the theory of calories in versus calories out, right? Like, if I have more calories going out than in, I'm going to lose weight. It only makes sense because – I consume 2,000 calories a day, but I am burning 3,000 a day. Well, where does that extra 1,000 calories come from? It comes from stored calories. Stored calories are typically going to be fat. Now, when you get super lean and you're trying to build muscle, you only have so much stored calories as fat. The other expendable tissue that you have that are quote-unquote calories is going to be muscle tissue. So – Logically, people say, okay, well, if I want to build muscle, I need to eat more calories because if we look at the equation of calories in versus calories out, well, if I eat 4,000 calories but I'm expending 3,000 calories, where does that extra 1,000 calories go to? In theory, it goes to muscle. Now, we know that if you intake a 1000 calories surplus, you're probably going to gain quite a bit of fat as well, um, which is why I advocate smaller surpluses like 200 to 300 calories because – um, because that's going to lead to lean gains, quote-unquote. It's going to lead to a smaller rate of progress. But at the end of the day, you can only build so much muscle so quick, especially if you've been in the game for a while. If this is your first year of training, you can build muscle pretty quick and you can build a lot of it. But for most people, it takes time. So there's there's really – there's no going into the weeds of like – Calories from a scientific standpoint of why it's working is just to me it's just it's unnecessary you don't even we don't need to go any further than the fact that if you eat more than you burn, you're going to gain weight if you burn more than you eat you're going to lose weight that's as simple as, as it is um, and that's why people back in the day just knew like okay I'm lifting I'm moving this much, I need to eat more and they were intuitive with it if they were eating six meals a day and a lot of those old bodybuilders ate the same shit every day. If they're eating six meals a day and they're they're not seeing the progress, okay, well, I'm going to go from one cup to two cups of rice per day. That gave them an extra 200 calories a day. They waited because people are patient. Bodybuilders are patient motherfuckers. They waited three months. They got a little bigger. They noticed that that surplus helped them out. So I think it's pretty simple, man. You don't really got to go too in-depth on it. Lauren McKenzie thinks she's funny. (laughs) What is your favorite hooked-on phonics product growing up? Because in the last episode I said – I didn't get it growing up, so I don't have a favorite. So I didn't get that shit, man. <laughs> I don't know how to read. What position did you play in soccer? I played center mid uh majority of the time. I played a little bit of everything. I mean I played striker at one point. I played uh I I, I could play anywhere when it was needed, but like my like on my select club teams, I played center mid more than anything. Uh, I know she has a serious question. Okay, okay. on a serious note, can you still build your glutes while not in a caloric surplus by adding frequency and volume or is heavy weight and a surplus needed? Um, Absolutely. I think that this is kind of going back to that old saying of like, and Joe DeFranco is the one that got it stuck in my head, is like the best program for you is the program you're not doing now. And what he means by that is pretty simple. If you are doing, um, let's say you come to me and you are, so I, so I should rewind real quick. If you are in a deficit and you've been training for more than two to three years, I do not think you can build much glutes. Um, I don't think you can build a lot of muscle. I shouldn't say just glutes. I don't think you can build a lot of muscle on a deficit, but I do think you can do it on a, on a maintenance. So if you're at maintenance calories and you haven't been optimizing your training programs or you've been doing the same program for a really long time – then I do believe you can build your glutes or whatever muscle you want because we can change the frequency of how often you're training that muscle. We can add volume. Um, We can change the amount of volume for one part versus the other. So we can keep your total, like if your total weekly sets is 80 sets for everything, but we shift it so that you're having 25 sets on glutes and you're bringing like chest and shoulders down to like 10 each so you can add extra volume on your glutes. I do think you're going to gain some muscle. And I do think that might be possible in a deficit depending on the body part and how infrequently you trained it. So I recently talked to um, – I did an interview with Christian Thibodeau for my membership site, and I was talking to him about my photo shoot. And I told him, man, like this is you know, – I've done this plenty of times. I get super lean, and I realized like, man – I really wish I would have built my abs more. Like I've never prioritized them because to be honest with you, I just don't enjoy training abs. It's not fun to me. I like lifting heavy and I like getting a pump. Abs, I don't get that that sensation. I don't get that feeling. I don't get that appreciation for it. So I don't really do it. So I asked him, I was like, man, I'm definitely in a deficit right now, but given that I've never really trained abs, do you think it's possible that if I crank the frequency up, I could actually build them? And in my mind, it was possible. Like it's a new, it's a muscle that I haven't touched in a long time. It's a muscle that hasn't got a very frequent stimulus before. Um, and even though I'm in a deficit, I'm still supplying myself with some carbohydrates, and I'm still supplying with myself with more than enough protein because so I'm eating well over a body, uh, gram per pound of body weight. And his answer was absolutely. So he recommended that I actually train him every single day for the next – at the time I talked to him, I think I had seven weeks left until the the photo shoot. He was like I would train him every single day and just keep training him because that high frequency is going to create the stimulus. They have no choice but to grow because you've never really prioritized them. So if that's the case with glutes, which probably isn't accurate because you're deadlifting and uh, doing split squats and squats and stuff, you're probably hitting your glutes a little bit, Um, then – you would really have to bump up the frequency if you were in a deficit. Now, if you were in a maintenance, um, I do believe that – two things. I believe that um, frequency will – frequency and volume are going to be the two key factors. But when – like the key to growth while using frequency is really going to be – utilizing intensities, uh, varying intensities throughout the week. So the best results I've seen from people's glutes growing, um, and I've done this with, I mean, I literally have before and afters of people who like have their butts are like lifted and after it's pretty crazy, um, over a three to four month period. And what we did, and these people were at maintenance. So their goal was fat loss. Um, and I, some of them actually lost fat during the process because even though they were at quote unquote maintenance, As we cranked up volume and intensity, they were just naturally training more and they burned more calories. So they actually did lose a little bit of fat in the process too. But what we did is we made sure to hit the muscle group three times a week. So I'm going to be talking about glutes right now, but you can apply this to anything. We hit the muscle group three times a week and we did it in the most – um, stimulating exercise, which is going to be the hip thrust. So we did hip thrust Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and we did different variations and we did different intensities and we did different volumes. And that's the big key there. So, uh, day one would be a single leg hip thrust for 20 reps per side. So like really exhausting. You're just going body weight. You're going to pretty much metabolic fatigue, metabolite fatigue, um, on your glutes. Wednesday would be a heavy low rep. So we did like three by six, four by six. Um, I typically don't like to go too low rep on the hip thrust, but you could even go four or five reps if you wanted to. Um, if we were doing quads or chest, I would go below that. But for the glutes, I did three, four by six. Uh, so three to four sets of six reps at a heavy load with a positive top. So now they're going heavy. And then on day three on Friday, we did three by 12 hip thrust. So now we're in that moderate intensity, higher, higher rep. Range with a good load because for 10 to 12 reps, I can still go decently heavy Uh, for 20 single leg reps. I'm forced to do body weight, Um, and it's a different resistance curve being single leg and everything. Um, And then on um, the Wednesday, we can really crank up the intensity and we're dropping the volume. But our frequency is high and technically our overall volume is really high, too. Now. One of those days we did a squat compound. One of those days we did a deadlift compound. The other compound was an upper body. So we're hitting our glutes a little bit in squat. We're hitting the glutes quite a bit in the deadlift. Um, And then there was some accessory work with like split squats, dumbbell reverse lunges, and a deficit. So you're getting that extra range of motion, which can trigger the glutes more. Anterior lunges, which are like glute dominant lunges. So we did hit the glutes in other ways on each of those days too. But, yeah, what we did is we cranked up the volume. We added frequency to the picture. So we hit them three times a week. And we made sure that we were waiving our intensities. And I think that's the big key, um, in my opinion, for growth. Because we know now that volume is volume, right? Um, It doesn't matter if you get – if you do – three reps or eight reps or 15 reps. You can grow significantly from each of those rep ranges as long as volume is equated for. Now, if we are doing three reps, it is really hard to get enough volume to grow because you have to do like 20 fucking sets of three just to get your total volume high enough. Uh, Whereas if we were doing sets of 12, we could do – 10 total sets in the week, and we're golden. That's why bodybuilders typically stick to that because they can do more of those type of sets. Um, But what we do know too with frequency that's stimulating higher, if we wave load our intensities and we build strength and we build hypertrophy in different ranges, it's been – excuse me. It's been shown that it's going to build muscle faster, and I can just tell you from experience like that is the best way. Like the program inside the membership site right now is a great example of that. It's a quote-unquote concurrent method, and what I did is we have days where we are going low rep and heavy weight, and we have days where we're going high rep in that metabolite burnout fatigue sets too, um, anywhere between ten to twenty reps. The same fucking movements, maybe a different loading scheme, but the same movements. We're just using frequency, and we're undulating our intensities throughout the week, and the results are insane. Like, I've used this program on clients before. I've used it on myself. Like, it delivers the best results possible, and that's the, the, the program that's in the – one of the programs that's in the membership site right now. So back to your question because I can go on a rant about this for days. Um, I think you can still build your glutes while you're not in a caloric surplus, uh, but, yeah, you got to tamper with frequency and volume, um, and most importantly to me is intensities within those sessions. Kelsey Cooper, this is a really simple question, but I'm glad you asked it because I think so many people actually ask me this um, when they start coaching with me. When weighing food, meat, sweet potatoes, veggies, etc., do you weigh before or after it is cooked? So what I would do is I would always – I always suggest weighing when it's raw. Like we got to remember too, veggies are like 80 percent water. Uh, Meat is like I think 65% water, Um, and I can go on and on about whatever food we're eating. Every piece of food has quite a bit of water inside of it. So if we cook it, we're cooking out that water, right? We're steaming out that water inside the pan, the microwave, wherever you're cooking, oven, anything. When we do that, it gets lighter, so if you are cooking your food raw, it's much more accurate because depending on how you cook it, how long you cook it, how burnt you like your food, so depending on how long you leave it on there, less and less water is going to be in there. But that doesn't change the nu- nutrient facts of that meal. So I would highly suggest weighing it raw. It's always going to be more accurate in my opinion. Now, the big thing is to make sure that when you're tracking your macros, you are weighing and entering in power or my macros Plus or whatever you use the same exact reading, and what that means is basically if you are weighing it raw, make sure that when you go into my fitness MyFitnessPal, you are adding chicken breast raw, not chicken breast grilled or cooked because then you're going to be entering in a different reading than what you actually weighed out, um, so in hindsight, it doesn't really matter whatever you can stay consistent with because if you cook in bulk and then you like to weigh afterwards, totally fine, consistency is the key, adherence is the key, um, but just make sure you're entering the right thing into my fitness MyFitnessPal. All right, uh, Derek Ledwidge. Ledwidge, does nutrition adjustments change as women go through menopause? Um, great question. Yeah, I think they do. Um, and it really, you know, it depends on the person. Like when people go through, when women go through menopause, um, and it's usually around the age 50 to 60, between there I think, um, a couple things happen. Uh, number one, you actually lose estrogen. Um when you are losing estrogen, fat is metabolized just differently in the body. Um, it's and it's really weird. It's actually like it's it's hard because for some wis- women, it's actually metabolized less, which means that you're you're not burning as much fat. as – metabolizing fat is burning fat. Um, So for some women, it's metabolized less. But for all women, almost all women, it's metabolized differently. So it's actually laid down in the body and it's stored differently. And the bad part about that is it's more primarily stored as a subcutaneous fat, which makes sense. Because if we look at visceral fat, visceral fat is the fat inside of our body that covers the organs. So if we look at our liver, uh, if we look at our kidneys, if we look at our intestines, everything, our our body can actually store – lipids, body fat, um, on top of these organs inside of our body, right? So subcutaneous fat is the fat we see on the outside of our skin. When we at visceral fat is what we don't see because it's inside our body on the organs, which isn't healthy by any means, but we can't see it. But after menopause, you're not having your cycle and everything anymore. I guess the body is prioritizing things a little bit differently, and it's not worried about saving those things so much i guess you could say like if you look at guys they have like the spare tire they call it right around their waistline well we're covering our most valuable organs to survive so if we get stabbed or bit by a saber-toothed tiger quote-unquote we're gonna be okay there's some fat to block that penetration hopefully probably not saber-toothed tiger would fuck us up but um besides the point um subcutaneous fat is what is between our muscle and our skin so that's the fat we see visually on our stomach, on our arms and stuff like that. So you're more likely, uh, to store body fat as sub subcutaneous fat. Some women, if they're healthy, they're not going to hit menopause and store more body fat. They're just more likely to store that body fat as sub subcutaneous fat. So I hope that makes sense to everybody listening. The things that also happen, um, typically you see changes in insulin sensitivity and glucose metabolism, so like uh, which obviously has different health parameters like in, there 's increased risk in different diseases and diabetes and stuff like that from that but what what that also means is that their insulin sensitivity is probably uh, diminishing or it is tampered with so if we look at insulin sensitivity and glucose metabolism, that is literally literally the ability to take carbohydrates and store them in the proper place insulin i always I'm not like – there's some people that are literally like the insulin gurus, and there's some people that I know in the industry and that I respect and I talk to that just know everything about insulin. And I know what I need to know in order to get my clients good results, and I don't know how to explain insulin in a science-based manner like some of these people do. But what, the way I like to describe insulin is insulin is like a boat. Right, And your carbohydrates your, – so carbs turn into glucose. Glucose goes with insulin to get stored as glycogen in the muscle cell or gets stored as subcutaneous body fat, which is very hard for the body to do. You have to be in a high caloric surplus to store body fat um, from anything, uh, but specifically carbohydrates because your body – if you're in a surplus, your body will store fat before it stores carbs um, because carbs are, are fuel. But I, I'll get into that later. Um, I look at insulin the way I describe it is a boat. Insulin is a boat and carbohydrates are your people on the boat. They need to get to their destination. Their destination is muscle. So you eat carbs. The carbs go on the boat. When they're on the boat, they're glucose because they are getting converted into glucose in your body. And once they arrive at the muscle cell, they have become glycogen. And glycogen is utilized to be burned as fuel inside the muscle. This is a good thing. Um, If... Your muscle cells are stored or if you're in a calorie surplus or if your body is not utilizing the glycogen that you're actually supposed to be, meaning if you're taking in all these carbs, you fill your glycogen stores, but you're not doing shit about it. You're not training. You're not actively being – you're not being physically active in in an intense manner. Your body doesn't need to keep storing them because it's already tapped out and it has no need for them as use. So what it will do is start storing them as fat. When – our insulin sensitivity is poor. It means that boat that I was just talking about, it, the boat is broken. <laughs> the boat is not sailing. The boat is not delivering the tra- the the um the riders of the boat, the visitors, the people, whatever you want to call it, um, the seamen um, on the boat which is the carbohydrates, to the muscle cell. So basically when we look at insulin sensitivity, if your insulin sensitivity is poor, your body is not going to know what to do with carbohydrates. And that's the same thing with glucose metabolism. Glucose metabolism is the way of your body basically taking carbs and going through that process I was just talking about. Carbs, glucose, glycogen. Um, So back to menopause. When women go through menopause, possible, there's a possibility that your insulin sensitivity and your glucose metabolism may lower. It may be worse. What you can do about this is if you're hitting menopause and you're having trouble with weight, what you can do, um, especially if this is more specific to people who go through menopause and start plateauing. If you are lean and then nothing changes except menopause and you start storing more body fat, then you should do this. Um, If you were overweight before menopause and you do this, it's probably not An I'm going to show you how to test it. It's probably not an issue with insulin sensitivity due to menopause. It's probably an insulin sensitivity issue due to you just being overweight prior to that. Um, So basically, you can test your glucose by using a glucometer. You can test your glucose with a glucometer. You can see what your reading is. If you're 90 or above – you should probably focus on lowering that. If you're 100 above, that's pre-diabetic. You should pr- really worry about lowering that. And if you're below 80, you're probably in the clear. In, around 70 is probably uh, the best range for being lean and seeing better results. Now, if you test your glucose levels and you notice that they're high, what you can do is you can remove carbs from your diet, bring fats up, and you can work on improving your insulin sensitivity. Because ironically, which is kind of it's a double-edged sword, To improve insulin sensitivity so you can handle carbs more, you actually have to remove carbs in the first place to get that insulin sensitivity better. Because if, and it makes sense if you think about it, like you're overweight, so your insulin sensitivity becomes poor. And the reason it's becoming poor is because you have more than enough glycogen stored in the muscle and it's starting to store as fat. Your body doesn't need any more. It doesn't know what else to do with it. So what do we need to do? We need to cut carbs and start using what is stored on us already. We need to become more fat adaptive. We need to be burning the fat that is stored, burning the glycogen that we already have until we get to a point where we're leaner and our insulin sensitivity is better because our body is now thriving and asking for more glucose, more glycogen, a.k.a. more carbs. So that was a long ass-winded answer. But basically, yeah, like when women go through menopause, like going back to your question, nutritional strategies do change a little bit because – Now you can think about like, okay, um, if they are going through menopause, maybe they are possibly insulin resistant. Maybe we need to cut carbs a little bit, bring fats up, get them more fat adaptive. Um, Let's focus on losing the weight so we can get them more insulin sensitive. Maybe we test their glucose levels. Um, And on top of that, remembering that their body is storing body fat a little bit differently. So the need for proper nutrition and exercise becomes even higher, um, a higher requirement because your body is now storing more fat as subcutaneous fat and it has no other choice. It's just part of, part of menopause. All right. This next one is from Sarah Blunt. What is going on, Sarah? One of my clients. I'm glad you asked this because – and I hope you're listening because um, – and if not, I'll talk to you about this on the side. She said, say you burn 154 calories from cardio. Do you add that back to your calories or just focus on the macro target for the day? times out of 10, you do not add that back to your calories. When we set a calorie goal for individuals, we are setting a calorie and a macro target based on where we want you including what you're burning. So if I set you at 2,000 calories, it's because I know you're burning about this much. And because of that, I'm going to set you here so you can successfully lose weight. And I see this with the people all the time. They burn calories and they add them back and then they end up taking themselves out of a deficit. And now we're just kind of chasing our own tail because we're burning calories to eat more calories, which brings us to a maintenance. And now we're not losing any weight. We're not losing any fat. Well, we want to lose weight and we want to lose fat. And in order to do that, we need to hit the calories and the macros that we were prescribed um, without adding anything back, no matter what we do. So in that case, you would never do it. Now the, the time you would add calories back from what you burn is in the case of a performance athlete or a marathoner, like I have a guy who I'm getting ready for a photo shoot. Um, and we're trying to maintain as much muscle as possible. And he's also about to climb Mount Whitney to completely opposite goals. What he is doing is going on a crazy hike, and we know that he's burning literally like 500 calories an hour. Like it's insane because he's going at higher elevation. He's he's nonstop moving. He has a huge pack on him um, all day. It's a 22-mile hike. For him, I want him replacing those calories he burned because the goal of the hike is to perform and to complete the hike. It's not to burn calories. But when you go do cardio, you're doing it in order to burn extra calories, not calories that you're going to be added back in. So I hear that all the time. And my recommendation for people is don't even track your your activity in MyFitnessPal because it'll give you the option and then you will get confused. And then you're going to want to add calories back in to make up for the calories you burn. Um, And on top of that, not only is it really confusing and it can just skew with your numbers of where you should be, it's also something that in my opinion promotes a poor relationship with food because now you have the tendency to try to do cardio in order to earn more food. And when you start doing activity to earn more food or you are doing activity because you ate too much food, it's just a negative relationship with food and with cardio and with dieting in general. So um, no, you shouldn't do that and, and I really don't recommend it. All right. Next question comes from Courtney Thomas. How to structure macros when sidelined due to an injury or surgery? So um, I think it really depends on how long you're going to be out. So I've had people that are like, man, I have to take a week off from training. A lot of times I'm like, "Hey, don't change your macros. Let's use this as a deload. There's nothing inherently wrong with taking a, a week to be in a Quote unquote surplus. Even if you weren't in a surplus before, now that you're not doing any activity, you might be in a surplus technically. There's nothing wrong with that, hormonally speaking, metabolically speaking, even like tissue recovery speaking. Like, I think it's a good thing. Stress management wise, it's a good thing. Um, I mean, I could keep thinking of reasons why it's not a bad idea. Now, So, so long story short, if just to summarize that quick thing, if you're only out for a week or less, I don't think you should change your macros. I think that's getting a little neurotic. If in my case, for example, I am getting ready for a photo shoot and I have to be a certain way by a certain deadline. Um, I'm not getting like stage lean by any means, but getting pretty lean. If that's the case. Yeah. I mean, if, if I'm out of the gym for a week, I would probably cut carbs out because I'm not in the gym and I would just use that week to kind of deplete out a little bit, um, I wouldn't make a huge deficit. I'd probably bring fats up a little bit, bring carbs down a little bit, create a little bit smaller deficit just for the week, uh, maybe do some intermittent fasting. But if you are like surgery and you are out for six months, then, yeah, I probably would. I would personally, I would probably suggest removing carbs, not removing, but lowering carbs quite a bit. I would go to a, um, a backloading s- split for my carbohydrates, and what I would do is basically have protein and fats throughout the day, and I would have a small optional serving of carbs at night um, if you can get by bi- without them, then take them out completely because the truth of the matter is is carbs are predominantly fuel um, for performance and training. If you're not performing in a training, you're going to be fine. Now, carbs can help with tissue um, under the assumption that they are paired with protein uh, because it, it is a muscle. It's a protein-sparing nutrient. It can act as if um, in cases when you have carbs higher. But in this case, if your carbs are even lower, then it really is doing you no good besides fiber and, and training performance. And if you're eating – and I would recommend actually having a little bit more than one gram per pound of body weight for most people unless you have a lot of weight to lose, then you're probably just in a, just in a high-protein diet in general is basically what I'm getting at. I would recommend that to anybody doing surgery because if you have more protein, you're going to get more nutrients that are supporting tissue rebuilding. And that's going to be good for any type of surgery you have because we have so many different uh, tissues in the body. I would be having some bone broth on a regular basis. I would have collagen on a daily basis because those are also tissue rebuilding uh, supplements and and nutrients. But – The way I would structure macros is basically lowering carbs. Um, I wouldn't necessarily bring fats up unless you were on a low-fat, high-carb diet. For me right now, I'm on a uh, low-fat, high-carb diet. So even when I get real lean, I mean I drop fats real low. Um, Just because that's my personal preference, Uh, I'm fine with really lean meats and carbs. I just enjoy having carbs so I can train harder and get a pump like that to me is more important. Um, But in most people's cases, I would have like a a moderate to high amount of fat. I would have a high amount of protein and I would have a really low amount of carbs simply because you're not using those carbs as effectively. And for the carbs I would have, I would have them at night. Uh, Mainly just because number one, socially, that's probably going to be the easiest because dinner time is usually when, it's hard to avoid carbs the most, um, but also because if we backload it um, or front load it, if we have our carbs in one period of the day, that's less insulin spikes we're having throughout the day. And studies show that, it, especially if you're not training, if you can kind of have a lower level of insulin throughout the day, if you and just have one spike, um, whether that's in the morning, in the middle there, at night, like if you can keep your carbs in one period, maybe like a four-hour window, um, even less in some people. You're probably going to benefit from a fat loss standpoint. And then um, last but not least, I'd have carbs in the afternoon probably because carbohydrates uh, trigger tryptophan and tryptophan gets converted into serotonin. And serotonin is basically a precursor to help us relax, calm down, and sleep in the brain. So that can be a good – and that's probably why a lot of you are like, man, I eat a big carb meal at night and I just want to pass the fuck out. Or when I don't have carbs, when I'm on the low-carb day, I don't sleep as well. Well, that's probably why. Um, So that's, I would structure carbs a little bit differently or macros a little bit differently if I had a serious injury or surgery and um, that's how I'd do it. Aileen said, I bought functional muscle. Also just watched the video, the latest video on CrossFit and bodybuilding crossover. Loved it. Guys, if you haven't been looking at my YouTube, check out my YouTube. Um, I'll try to remember to put a link in the description. I always say that and then I forget to do it. Um, But been putting out more and more YouTube content. The videos go on IGTV as well, and they also go on Facebook. We're trying to do more and more video stuff. We're going to be shooting some more videos today, actually. Um, and I just did one on transitioning between or combining bodybuilding and CrossFit, and I think it was a really cool video, and I think I approached it in a way that not many people um, have considered, Um, and I have a lot of clients I work with who do both CrossFit and bodybuilding, and we combine them in this way, and they get phenomenal results, and they get the best of both worlds. They have the atmosphere, the intensity, and the drive and the fun of CrossFit, and they also get the benefits from a joint perspective, from a nervous system perspective, and from a muscle uh, perspective from bodybuilding, and combine that, and they're seeing phenomenal results, and they're loving it, so check that video out. Um, But she said she loved the video. Um, Functional muscle is a four-day plan, so which days should we do? And what if the Metcon isn't very taxing? Could I do the Metcon and a functional muscle workout same day? For example, Monday CrossFit, Tuesday functional muscle, Wednesday CrossFit, Thursday list slash mobilization, Friday functional muscle, Saturday CrossFit, Sunday rest. Um so she basically had three CrossFit days, two functional muscle days, and then one like low intensity mobilization day, which is basically like her recovery day. I think that split is perfect. Um I've had people do three days of functional muscle or I what I consider functional muscle method, my method of training. Um I've had people do three of those, two CrossFit, one recovery day, which is usually list and mobile mobility, like you said. I've had people do it your way, three CrossFit, two functional muscle. I think any way you spin it, you're fine. Um But what I would not do is I wouldn't combine the Metcon and the functional muscle um, simply because even if it's an easy Metcon, let's say it's a total 20-minute workout, you're still going to be in the gym for almost two hours at that point. That's a long time to have cortisol elevated. Um, for men, your testosterone's starting to dip at that point, and you're not going to have a positive recovery effect. It's a high stress on the body. Um, the longer you're in the gym, the, the more stress on the nervous system it is. And even a 10-minute fucking wad is very intense, and it's very demanding of the nervous system. And you're going to feel that. So I don't like combining them. Um, the whole point of it is to – Balance these out so you have optimal recovery because the issue with CrossFit is that it doesn't have a very high recovery component inside of it. Yes, they take Thursday recovery days, but that's about it. So I like the way you balance it, though. You're alternating between CrossFit and functional muscle. Um, The thing I would say is like what what I tell people is if you're going to combine bodybuilding and CrossFit, you need to declare one as your priority. Um, if bodybuilding is your priority, then three of your days go to that, two your days go to CrossFit. Um, and when you're doing that, you're not maxing out in CrossFit and you're more likely to max out in, in bodybuilding. What I mean by that is if I have a bench press day on my bodybuilding day, which most people do. That's my day where I'm going to focus on performance. If I am doing an overhead press or a jerk or a push press or a squat thrust or anything on CrossFit, I am not going to go balls to the wall heavy to a point where I'm going to fatigue myself so when I get back to bench the next two days in my bodybuilding workout, my performance suffers. Just like that, if CrossFit is your main thing and you're more focused about performing in CrossFit, being strong in CrossFit, then what you don't want to do is do functional muscle, have your RPE at a 9 or a 10 for everything, and burn yourself out so when you go to CrossFit, you're super sore in all these places you're not used to because you're not used to bodybuilding or your nervous system is just fatigued because you took a bodybuilding set to failure, right? So. I think it's smart to prioritize which one you want most and use the other as a supplemental um, exercise, kind of like an accessory work, right? When we do lunges, we're not maxing out on lunges. We're building the skill of a knee-dominant movement in a unilateral position. We're building muscle. We're building resiliency. We're building joint health. We're building movement quality. And that is all going to apply to me doing a better barbell squat because the barbell squat is the thing I want to push myself in performance-wise. The same component here. If you're doing CrossFit and that's your main thing, use functional muscle as accessory work. That's your day where you do build some muscle. You take care of your joints. You do some unilateral stuff. You do way more rowing because functional muscle is heavy on the posterior chain, which I think every program should be. And CrossFit doesn't have enough rowing. Um... And I don't mean rower by that. I mean like volume on the pull movements. Um, so you're using it kind of then as an accessory day. Um, so that's how I would set it up. I would definitely – in the way you would do the four-day plan, so I can answer that part too. Functional muscle is four days and you're only doing two days a week of it. And this goes for anybody. Anybody who is listening that's like I only can train two days a week realistically or I can train three days a week. You can do the same thing. Take a four-day-a-week plan like I have and what you would do is you would do instead of me going – Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, four days a week, I'm doing Tuesday, Friday, day one, and day two. The next week, I'm doing Tuesday, Friday, day three, and day four. So when we look at a program, a micro cycle is usually one week, right? So functional muscle has a four-day microcycle. You have four days of training, you fit it into one seven-day period. Well, in the case where you can only train twice a week, your microcycle becomes fourteen days instead of seven days, and you just spread those four sessions out between fourteen days. And because it's an upper lower split, it's going to even out by the end of the month anyway. Um, so I wouldn't wouldn't worry about that too much. And that's how I would I would do like so. If you're doing CrossFit Monday, you do day one a functional muscle Tuesday, CrossFit Wednesday, list Thursday, recovery day. Friday is day two of functional muscle Saturday CrossFit, and then the next week you go CrossFit Monday, day three of functional muscle and you just kind of cycle through that and the program will end up lasting you 18 weeks instead of nine all right uh this is the last set of questions for today and it's from my boy marty marr and he's got some randoms and these are the ones i love man thank you number one question rank them in order of personal preference beef chicken pork fish shellfish Ooh, you know what I'm gonna go beef man uh, well I mean are we talking steak or ground beef I'm a big beef guy man I, I love I love steak I'm not I don't eat ground beef um, not because it's bad I just don't eat it um, I would ch- choose beef or chicken I love chicken like a, a really good barbecued chicken with some just barbecue sauce like that's my thing and I'll get like low sugar. Barbecue sauce, I love it. But, man, nothing does it like steak for me. I would go beef all day. And to be honest with you, even from a – that's a perf- personal preference. Like a juicy steak is perfect. Like it just tastes so good. But from a nutrient perspective, there's so many more nutrients inside of a steak than there is a chicken or a pork fish or a period. Um, if I had to let science say it and like getting lean, I would probably say white fish because it's light. It's a really easily digestible, um, high amino acid uh, Protein source, white fish is going to be your go-to. But for me, man, I'm choosing steak. Number two, tacos, hard shell or soft tortilla. Ooh, I'm going soft, man. Soft, I've always been a burrito guy. So even growing up, I never had. My brother always got the hard tacos. I'm all about the soft shell, man, all day. Um, I love, like, wrapping as much shit as I – I was that kid that my burrito always ripped because we're at home making tacos, and I just put – it's like, man, there's a whole pack of tortillas over there. Calm down, Cody. And I'm like, no, I can can fit more in here. And I would shove as much shit in this little tortilla as I possibly can, and then it would rip, and then I would just have, like, beef juice and, like, salsa and and onions and all that shit all over my lap and plate because – the tortilla would not withstand the amount of context, the amount of ingredients I wanted in that shell. But I'm a soft shell guy, soft tortilla all day. Number three, wine, red or white, easy red. There's no doubt in my mind. I, I've been a big, uh, there's a couple red blends that I really like, but I'm a big cab guy, cab in Malbec, uh, I'm so red all day. Not a big fan of white. White's okay if you, it's cold and it's in the, in the summer, but I'm just not a big white guy. I, I really do prefer red. Four, favorite action movie star of all time. Dude, I should have read these questions before. Whew, that's a hard one. Um I got to think for a sec. Favorite action movie star of all time. Oh my god, that's tough. That's so fucking hard. Actually, so when I think action movie star, um I'm not thinking of superheroes. I'm thinking of Bruce Willis and Die Hard, Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, shit like that. Um the guy from transporter i don't even know his name but he was cool oh i'm gonna go with fuck dude that's killer i'm gonna go with james bond i gotta go james bond man james bond was i just grew up watching so many of his movies and there's just so many different james bond movies and he's like the ultimate dude like growing up like i wanted to be like james bond he was slick he wore a suit he was classy he always kept his cool he always drank like the fanciest drinks like shit I wouldn't even like as a kid I'm like what is he drinking but it looks so elegant like that's dope um, and he just knew how to do everything like I feel like there's always an episode where he knew how to like make a drink or fix whatever he needed to get fucking fixed he knew how to kill people and like disarm people and he just and he did everything with such like a cool demeanor so I'm definitely gonna go James Bond for sure and if I had to pick one James Bond guy fuck I gotta look this up I mean there was a lot of James Bond actors um I should go Sean Connery because he is like he was the man like he was the original damn he was the first one so I, I would love to say him but I'm, I'm gonna go with uh Pierce Bronson Bronson or whatever because he was the one I was growing up to I was born in 92 so he was 1994 through 2004 so I'm, I'm gonna go with him for sure Um, his last question, favorite comedic movie star of all time. This one's tough too, because I just saw Kevin Hart live and we were like pretty damn close to him on stage. And I've, I was literally, we were just in tears. Like I was crying. It was so funny. Um, so because I've seen him live, he kind of comes to mind, but I don't want to say Kevin Hart because that's like such a generic answer. Um, the first person that actually came to mind when you said this was Dave Chappelle, um, Dave Chappelle, I've always watched all the standups. i loved his show, the Chappelle show. Um, it's just a funny ass dude. So I think I would go, uh, I would probably go with Dave Chappelle. All right, guys, that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed the show today. A couple quick announcements before I let you go. First and foremost, I just want to encourage you to check out the products I have in the description. First one is the nutrition hierarchy. This is a very cheap guide to literally mastering your diet. That's why it's called The All-Inclusive Guide to Mastering Your Diet. It's going to teach you exactly what and how to manage your calories, your macros, your meal timing, your supplements, your micronutrients. Literally everything you need to know about dieting and nutrition and how to change your body composition through nutrition is included in this book. Not just to get your results, but to actually teach you how to get those results along the way. The next thing is going to be functional muscle, which is my first and right now my biggest product out there. This is the program that is based on years and years and years of functional training with tons of clients. So whether your goal is strength, fat loss, or muscle gain, you should be strength training towards these goals while prioritizing functional movement patterns to make sure that you are avoiding any injuries along the way. That's exactly what this program does, and it's great because it guides you through the process, it changes throughout the process, and it gives you demonstrations and explanations about everything you're doing so you never get confused and you always have a solution. You also get access into the Boom Boom Performance Podcast Forum. That is the only way into the forum, and that's where you can ask me literally anything about anything, and I will help guide you through the process. Last thing I want to mention, guys, is if you could leave me a five-star rating and review, that would be fantastic because it literally is one of the biggest and best ways for me to grow in the iTunes chart. Oh, yeah, and real quick, if you're not subscribed, hit the damn subscribe button because I constantly bust out content for you guys. And I spent a lot of time and effort making sure that you guys can get better results for free by simply listening to this podcast. All right, guys. I'll catch you next time.